It feels like a while since I've been uh, stood up here uh, with the summer holidays and whatnot, so it is genuinely good to see you guys. And um, I've been so excited to uh, prepare uh, to preach today. I hope I haven't forgotten how to do it. Uh, it seems like it's been like well over a month. So um, glad, glad to be here. My name's Ian. If, if you don't know that, I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, today we're going to start just a new short little series. More about that in a minute. If you've got one of these programs, you can follow it on the right-hand page there. Make any notes if you'd like to do that. It would be really helpful if you keep your finger in the page that we just read because we're going to dip into that and refer to it. Um, at the end of September, date for your diary, the 30th of September, we're going to have a special commissioning service uh, to appoint Ben Keane, who's sitting right there, um, as one of our church leaders. Many of you know that. And so during this month, we thought it would be good to build up to that so that that becomes the crescendo at the end of September. Um, so think of this month as a kind of vision month. What, what we're trying to communicate here is our values. What, what, what kind of church are we trying to be? And what are the values that shape why we do the things we do? I hope that this will help Ben, but I hope that it will also inspire all of us, all of you, to either get involved or be involved in, in what we're doing here in Rotherham. So to that end, I want to spend the next three weeks looking with you at this short letter um, to this man called Titus written by a man called Paul. This is essentially a letter from a leader to another leader, encouraging him and telling him how to go about building a healthy church. That's what we want, isn't it? And I, I think this letter is very exciting too because this is only 30 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead. Christianity at this point is very new. It is spreading rapidly around the Mediterranean. And even though this is a long time ago, even though it's a different place, I, I think this letter is incredibly relevant to us here in Rotherham because the principles behind what Paul says to Titus are really timeless. They're the same principles now, even though we're in a different place and a different time to, to what they were then. I, I haven't got the clicker to move the slides on, so I might need... Oh, wow. Thank you. Now I have. Here we go. Just look with me at verse 5 of chapter 1. This is a key verse to just show what's going on in the whole book. You, you'll know, I think, that Crete is an island. This blob in the middle is meant to be Crete, okay? If you don't know the shape of Crete, that's it. It's a long island. It's almost slap bang in the middle of the Mediterranean. If you look on a map and put, put your finger in the middle, you'll probably put your finger on Crete. And if you look at chapter, five and chapter 1 and verse 5, we're told that something has started there on this island that now needs completing and establishing. Paul says to his friend Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. So the implication is they've been there together at some point, and now Paul is delegating the task of building healthy churches 
on this island, and he's delegating that task to his friend here, Titus. When you look at verse 4, you'll see that Paul describes Titus as his true son in our common faith. I, I think that probably means that Paul had actually led Titus to faith. So in a way, Paul is his spiritual dad. This is someone that Paul has led to Christ and faith in Christ, and now he's delegating his spiritual son to a really important task here on this island. I think Titus became one of Paul's most trusted friends. And we know from Paul's other letters in the Bible that Paul gave him some other tricky jobs to do, as well as this one. It seems to me that Titus was a good man who believed in Jesus and had this ability to inspire other people and get stuff done. And so Paul turns to his friend Titus to do this job on the island of Crete. Let me give you a little overview of, or, or a background. Um, you, you, you will hear us talk a lot in this church about the gospel. If you've been here for more than 10 minutes, this is a word that basically means good news. And when we use this word gospel, we're basically talking about the life-giving message of the gospel. There is a sense in which that message should put a smile on your faces and on my face. It, this is a message that is good news for us. In other words, God wants you to know things. He wants you to know things that are good for you. He wants me to know things that are good for me. Now, this, this letter doesn't use the word gospel specifically, but it does talk about a message. Just look at verse 9 of chapter 1, where Paul talks about one of the primary characteristics of a leader in a church. He says, a, a leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. I love that. Even at this early stage in Christianity, there's a, there's a clear set of things, a body of truth, a, a, an information that, that it's been taught in Jerusalem, it's been taught all the way around the Mediterranean, now it's come to Crete, and all the leaders in all the churches are teaching the same trustworthy message, the same content, the good news of the gospel. This letter is very practical, and as we go through it over the next three weeks, you'll see that there's lots of practical instructions for Titus to follow. But, but interestingly, in each of these chapters, Paul gets carried away, and he gives a little summary of this gospel. Without, he doesn't use the word gospel, but in every chapter, there's a little summary of this message, this truth, this knowledge, this information that he's wanting to impart. I just realized I've left my staple in my notes. We'll get rid of that. Um, in other words, Paul's instructions here to Titus are inseparably linked to the life-giving message 
of good news that we call the gospel. I, I think it's like, I don't know, it, it's like the gospel is simmering under the surface the whole time. This, this positive message of good news is lurking under the surface and Paul's so excited by it that it kind of breaks out in each chapter. It should be clear to us straight away that Paul, as a leader himself, is excited by and motivated by and immersed in this thing that we call the gospel. And I just want to stop there. This surely means that if any church in any place, in any time, is going to be healthy, it has to start here. If any church is going to be healthy, it has to start with the right content. And it seems to me here in Titus that the message of the gospel is the engine that drives Paul. And the same message of the gospel is the engine that should drive the church. In chapter 1, Paul's summary of the gospel is right at the beginning. He, he describes himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is someone who has been personally sent on mission by Jesus. He's been sent on that mission, it says, for the faith of God's elect, that is God's chosen people, and for their knowledge of the truth. You see the, the same idea there. There's a body of truth, something to know from God. Paul's been sent to tell people that. And this truth from God stretches way back to before the world was even created, before any of us here were even born, Way back then, God decided in his heart to promise people the gift of eternal life. And then one day, he brought this hidden promise that had been in his heart for a long time. He brought it out into the open by sending men like Paul out into the world to say, guess what? You can have eternal life. What a job. So Paul's mission here from God was to tell people that they could have eternal life from God. God himself is reaching out to people by sending preachers like Paul to announce this amazing good news and part of the trustworthy message of the gospel is that God wants all of you to know that you can have eternal life. God has planned this for all eternity. This isn't a flash in the pan. It isn't like a plan B or a plan C or a plan D. God has been planning this for all eternity. He planned to do what was necessary to achieve it. And he planned that one day you would come to hear about it so that you could believe it. 
Imagine that. In chapter 2, I'm going to get carried away like he does. In, in chapter 2, toward, it, it Paul's summary comes towards the end from verse 11. So th- th- this is a practical letter. And then Paul says, just read with me from verse 11, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager, eager to do what is good. Paul here is saying that we're all sinners who have let God down, but in his grace he has sent the Lord Jesus into the world to give himself, to redeem us, that is, to buy us back so that we would belong to him again. Jesus did this by swapping places with us. He gave himself. He died the death that we deserve so that we could know his eternal life. All of our guilt was laid on his shoulders and Jesus himself took our punishment so that we could be free from fear and come back to our Father God who loves us. So the gospel is about God promising eternal life. He achieves it through the death and the life of Jesus, his son. In chapter 3, Paul gives another little summary. He hasn't finished getting carried away yet. In chapter 3 and verse 4, listen to these words. But when the kindness, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the holy spirit whom he poured out on us generously through jesus christ our savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs we might become those who inherit everything, having the hope of eternal life. There it is again. And then Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is the gospel. This is the message. This is the content. This is what God wants you to know. So the third thing about the gospel is that it's for those who don't deserve it. God did this not because we were right, but because he loved us even when we were wrong. This message is good news because it's not for people who are good, it's for people who are broken. This is a message of God reaching out deliberately 
in kindness and love to us who don't deserve anything from him. I will. <laughs> but did you notice too, in all these little summaries, that this gospel, this good news, is a message that changes people's lives? In chapter 1, Paul said this was a truth that would lead to godliness. In other words, it has the power to change people's behavior. In chapter 2, Paul said that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live righteous lives. And that those who grasp it properly will be eager, enthusiastic to do what is good. In chapter 3, Paul says, we, he includes himself in this, he says we were disobedient, we were even deceived, we didn't know what we were doing before we heard this message and when we heard this message it's made us completely new people so for Paul there is this unbreakable connection between what you believe and how you behave when you believe this good gospel news from God it will change your life you become a new person with new values new motives new power from God to live in a way that pleases him. It changes your whole identity. Paul talks here about being washed, about being renewed, about being reborn. The old is gone, the new has come. Your identity is different now. That's just the background to this letter. <laughs> Can you see Paul's excitement as he writes to his friend Titus? He's already led him to faith. And now he says, Titus, I'm leaving you in Crete to establish healthy churches there, don't ever forget that all of this depends on the gospel, this message. There's a truth, there's, a, there's, a, there's information that God wants you to know. God loves you. He offers eternal life to you through Jesus, his son. We don't deserve it in a sense he commands you to believe it, to receive it, to embrace it. He reaches out to you to forgive you and to bring you into his family. You can trust him because he is trustworthy. You can trust him right now in your seat. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever it is that you're afraid of, God calls you to believe his promise to you in the Lord Jesus. Do it. Do it now. And with that background in mind, Paul's advice to Titus comes on how to build a healthy church. Paul's first priority here, and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about this, is for Titus to ensure that these churches have good leaders. It's important that, isn't it? Because if, 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 if something doesn't have good leadership, it's going to go wrong somehow, isn't it? And chapter one is essentially all about leadership. Paul tells Titus, let's... Um, Oh, the, the importance of leadership, there we go. 
Look, look with me at what Paul says first to Titus, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The first thing, the very first thing Titus is to look for is to look for appropriate leaders so that the church would be healthy. I should say, this is a little bit more than an aside, but it is an aside really. I should say that this has shaped a little, more than a little, our approach to ministry here in Rotherham. This church here, for those of you who are relatively new, had grown very small. It should have closed really and become a carpet shop. But one approach might have been to pray and to hope that the church would somehow grow again and then when it grew, then we'll appoint some leaders. But obviously, if if a leader is going to give the majority of his time to working in the church, he's got to live. He's got to have some kind of pay for doing that. And if a church is very small, there's very little money, so it's very difficult to find leaders and be able to afford to pay them. So some churches that are very small will limp along, hoping for the best. We, we, we fought, Paul said to Titus here, you need to find leaders, mate. The church won't be healthy unless there's leaders there to set vision and purpose and encourage the, the, the church with this amazing gospel news that we've been talking about. So our sense was that our church should try to appoint leaders, even though we couldn't afford it, who could do those things. And that the church would then be more likely to grow into that leadership capacity. So basically, and probably, I, I don't know, we felt we were a bit mad doing this. We, 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 we talked about a thing called overstaffing. In other words, we had way more staff than we really warranted for the size of church we were. But the idea is that the church would grow into that. And I, I think by God's grace, that's exactly what's happened. That required some significant generosity from sympathetic friends outside of the church who gave so that we could have leaders. And our church is unusual in that we have way more leaders than the size of our church warrants. But that's deliberate. It's a, there's a strategy here of investing in gospel growth. Some of us work the majority of our time leading here in the church but have other jobs too that pay us and support us financially so that we're not a financial burden on our church while it's still small. And even as Ben comes this year, this month, we're thankful to Ben's church in Bristol for committing to support Ben for two years financially. Here at REC, we've agreed and been able to match what they've pledged and then there's a whole range of generous other donors who know Ben and know us who've also pledged support. And that means that we're able to offer Ben a full-time role here to work in our church. Praise God for that. I, I, I'm amazed that we've got to the number that we've been able to get to. I, I think Ben is as well, as, as he's arrived. How God has blessed the step of faith that's being made. It's amazing. So our prayer is that our church will continue to grow 
into that capacity and as people come to faith in Jesus and believe this good news, maybe people move into the area who are already believers and they join the church and they give to the work of the church here and the church gradually becomes more able to support itself financially. What a great trajectory uh, that has been uh, and is. The, the word that Paul uses here for church leaders here is the word elder. It's an odd word. Um, it it kind of goes back to almost Old Testament times or ancient culture times where in a tribe or a clan, the older gentlemen in that tribe, the elders would be the mature ones. They would have the gray hair and the, the wisdom to adjudicate on things. So I think this word elder speaks of maturity and it speaks of people in the community who have the respect of the rest of the community. It's not really in New Testament terms talking about age. Timothy was a young man uh, when he became an elder, but you get the idea that this is about respect and maturity. In the New Testament, there's a lot of other words that describe leaders as well as elder. Sometimes you hear the word pastor. The word pastor really means shepherd. It's talking about compassion, love for people. Even in this chapter, it uses the word overseer. That's about administration, managing resources. Paul says here to Titus, it's about managing God's household. That's a different skill set. And then, of course, often the word teacher is used, which is an important thing for leaders to be able to do. Now, you know that different leaders will have different balances of skills in those areas. But notice that Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in the plural. He doesn't just say to Titus, appoint an elder in each town. I, I don't think there's anyone who could do all of those things perfectly well. What Paul's driving at here with Titus is that it is good for there to be a team ethos, for, for there to be a team of leaders who, whose skills complement each other, who can keep each other sharp. I think there's a wisdom in that. But as we've seen, by far and away, the main thing for Paul is that the gospel, good news from God, should be the thing that shapes leadership in the church. So I just want to spend some time, the rest of our time, talking about two things. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But uh, two things. First of all, strong leadership equals character that is shaped by the gospel. And then secondly, as you can see on the sheet there, we'll talk about confidence that is inspired by the gospel. So let, let's think about that first one from what Paul says to Titus, character shaped by the gospel. So you can imagine Paul, he's writing to Titus, you should appoint elders, and the question is, what, what should I look for in these leaders? And that's exactly what Paul tries to tell him. I, I wanna just pause here, and I want you to see, because this is important, that there is absolutely nothing in this list from verse sort of six downwards. There's nothing in this list about race. 
There's nothing in this list about intelligence or educational background. There's nothing in this list about wealth or class. This list is not about any of those things. This list and others in the New Testament like it are mainly about character. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, like a checklist that you can tick boxes. I think what Paul is trying to convey here is an overview, a sense of the kind of men that Titus should be looking for as he populates churches with leaders. He begins in verse 6 with the word blameless, and uh, he uses it again, I think, in verse 7. This does not imply that these leaders are going to be sinlessly perfect, but he is to look for men who are what we might call above reproach. Titus is to look for men who have no obvious character flaw or character defect. And then Paul proceeds to flesh out what that means. I think there's two sides to this. First of all, I think Titus is meant to look for men who have proven themselves in their private life. And then he's going to look for certain behavioural traits and attitudes. He says very little here about skills or abilities. He does talk about the ability to teach a little. But overall, the issue here is one of having a good, solid, reliable character. So, first of all, evidence from a man's private life. We'll just touch on this briefly. There we go. I think what Paul's saying to Titus is check out a man's family. What's he like as a husband, if he is a husband, and a parent? Paul can't mean that only married men can be leaders because Paul himself wasn't married. So that would disqualify himself, which would be stupid. Um, I think what he's doing is saying, look at a man's life. Look at a man's life and make sure that his relationships... His lifestyle gives you a sense of confidence that he is a trustworthy man. If he's a husband, is he faithful? If he's a dad, is he a good one? If he has a job, is he known as a diligent, responsible worker? The point of this assessment is, is he reliable? Paul isn't aiming here at perfection. He's looking, or he's telling Titus to look for men who, generally speaking, can handle life. A few years ago, I remember there's a a well-known Canadian pastor and author, some of you might know, called Don Carson. He's coming to the UK actually later this year to speak at uh, the FIC conference that some of us are going to in Turkey in November. But a few years ago, he came to Leeds, and I remember he, he gave some talks about leadership, and he summed up this passage and others like it by saying that this is about looking for men who know what to do when a wheel falls off. I've never forgotten that phrase. That's how he summed up this whole passage. What Paul is saying, Titus, look look for men who will know what to do when a wheel falls off. You can't like do that by checklist, can you? But I think that's a vivid picture and we know what that looks like. Titus is to look for men who are a safe pair of hands. Men who can cope with responsibility and who've demonstrated that in their private life. But then Paul goes on to talk about behaviour. This is essentially, from verse 7, 
and verse 8. So what, what I'd like to do is break it down into two sets of three. Three things that a leader shouldn't be and three things that a leader should be. Okay? And they begin with the same letter, so you'll remember them. Two different letters for each set of three. First of all, a leader should not be annoying or arrogant. The word here that Paul uses to Titus, let me find it here in the small print. He says in verse 7, since an overseer manages God's house, he must be blameless and not overbearing. The word overbearing is a good word. It really means to be self-centered, self-willed, self-important, self-pleasing. This is the common manly trait of not being able to listen or of being a smart aleck. I came across a great story by John Benton. Some of you know John Benton. He's a British pastor. There were a pilot and three passengers on an aircraft, a small aircraft, two teenage boys and and an older Christian man. And the pilot announces that he has a problem with one of his engines and this plane is going to crash. And he tells them that while there are four of them on the plane, there's only three parachutes. And then he very kindly presses the eject button and he's off with one of them. So this plane now is pilotless, two boys and an old Christian man on this plane. And there are two parachutes left. One of the teenagers says, I'm one of the brightest young people in the world. I have an IQ of 175 and I feel pretty confident that I will bless this world. Maybe I'll come up with a cure for cancer or AIDS or something. I think the world needs me and he grabs the nearest bag and jumps out. And the old man starts to say to the second teenager, listen, I'm an old man and I'm a Christian. I know where I'm going after I die. You take the last parachute. You've got your whole life ahead of you. But the teenager says, don't worry, mate. There are still two parachutes. The brightest boy in the world just jumped out with my sandwiches. (laughs) Overbearing. Overbearing. (laughs) The point is, Even though leaders will teach, I need to give you a minute, don't I? (laughs) Even though leaders teach, they must be teachable. They need to allow for the fact that they can get things wrong sometimes. Leaders need to cultivate humility. And I I can tell you, you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. In any walk of life, let alone in a church, an overbearing leader will dominate a situation. And in a church, that will happen to the extent that Christ and this glorious message of good news will be obscured altogether 
and the ministry in the church will become all about that guy instead of instead of that guy Jesus <laughs> secondly leaders ought not to be aggressive Paul here says not quick tempered and then he says not violent men with short fuses do not make good leaders men who are oversensitive or who are prone to insulting people who criticize them men who have anger management issues some men are just argumentative maybe that's because they're men i don't know some men are just argumentative but there can be no place in church leadership teams for men who are brittle or who are so insecure that they think being a man means shouting at other people or bullying other people it doesn't work at home and it can never work in the church and thirdly leaders ought not to be addicted paul says here um he must not be given to drunkenness. I don't, I don't know who Titus had on his like, list of candidates. But Paul, Paul, Paul says, Titus, don't, don't appoint a man to church leadership who's prone to drunkenness. I think there's more to this than just the issue of drink. Certainly Paul says that a man who drinks too much is not an appropriate candidate for leadership in a church or maybe leadership anywhere. For some men, alcohol might be the issue, but there are plenty of other things a man can be addicted to. Some men can be addicted to money. So Paul's mentioned here later about dishonest gain is relevant to this issue of addiction. A Christian leader ought not to be a man who's easily bribed or who shows favoritism. I think men also need to be careful about being addicted to popularity. Some men never really grow up they're like the child who makes a lego model and is dad dad look at what i did look at what i did look at me look at me look well, we do grow up and we become more sophisticated but the underlying kind of attitude is the same look at me look at me please like me please love me if a leader is addicted to the drug of seeking approval he's going to fall into a big and dangerous trap and if a man is so frightened of being unpopular or is striving so hard to be well liked how on earth is he going to say hard things that need to be said if he's fearful of being unpopular he won't be able to teach accurately it'll affect his judgment he'll be too frightened to say difficult things what Paul is trying to say here to Titus is, is that if there is a pattern in a man's life of trying to escape reality or of becoming enslaved by things it, it, it won't bode well in leadership so there's three things a man ought not to be it's not meant to be a checklist but you're, you're getting a good sense but there's three things here that Titus said a leader should be and the first is 
that a good leader should be hospitable. I think what Paul means here is that a good leader will have a generous heart. You'll be open-handed. You'll be kind. You'll be approachable and open. In, in the Old Testament, the idea of hospitality was really connected to the idea of being kind to strangers and welcoming and providing for outsiders, visitors, the vulnerable, the needy. So when Paul says here that a leader should be hospitable, I think he's including in that that a good leader will be someone who has his eyes open and is alert to people on the margins, outsiders, people who are vulnerable. A good leader won't be racist or prejudiced or, or class-driven. He, he'll be generous. Secondly, uh, I summed it up only because it began with H. A good leader would be healthy. And what Paul says here, Titus, find men who are hospitable and find men who love what is good. What a simple thing that is. There's a simplicity about this man. He isn't rash. He isn't prone to being wild and reckless and foolish. This is a man who's settled down with himself. He's balanced. There's a maturity about him. Dare I say, in this culture, he's sensible. I don't think our culture prizes people who are sensible. It's got a boring connotation to it. But what Paul's saying here is, look for men like that, Titus. Look for men who love what's good. His appetites are under control. He has clean taste. He's wholesome. He's not the kind of man who revels in dirty jokes. He revels in things that are good, healthy. He doesn't have a dark side in private that no one can see. No. He loves what's good. He's wholesome. And last of all, honest. This last clause is a little bit of a three-way deal. He loves what is good and he's self-controlled. And I, I think the three words then, upright, holy and disciplined, it's almost if Paul is saying, this man, he's in control of himself and that means that he's upright in his dealings with other people. He's holy and straight in his dealings with God. And he's disciplined in his relationship with himself. In other words, he's not a hypocrite. He's a straightforward man. You can trust him. Now, I, don't, don't you think as you read this that this should be true of all of us? <laughs> it's like, this is really a list of what it means to be an ordinary, healthy Christian, surely. But these things are crucial in potential leaders. Our leaders are going to be the ones who set the tone. They're an example. When they are like this, they are surely a gift to God's church. When they're not like this, the harm and damage that they can wreak is surely enormous. And wouldn't it be great if all leaders in all walks of life were like this? Think of your workplace. Think of your school. If all leaders were like this, wouldn't the world be a good place to live? 
I think Paul is right on point in the descriptions he gives to Titus. Often we think of leadership as being the boss. We think of it in terms of authority. But all of these traits, they're not about having an office with a name on the door. These traits are about being diligent and true and honest. These, these traits are about character. And ultimately, ultimately, it's hard for me to talk about these because I'm meant to be this. <laughs> Ultimately, isn't our encouragement that the Lord Jesus, the, all of these traits find their pinnacle expression in him, don't they? He was and is and always will be gloriously and perfectly and always like this. That's why we can trust him. And so Paul tells Titus to get to work appointing leaders and he gives him some idea of the kind of men he should be looking for. Titus, mate, find men who love Jesus and who are like him. And when you do, you'll be halfway there in terms of building and having a healthy church character shaped by the gospel the second thing and we, we, we won't be as long with this this is the last thing I want to say that strong leadership is about confidence in the power of the gospel so let me ask you if you were going to start a new church where would you do it where would you go find a nice place with nice people nice weather and go for it but that wasn't Crete Crete is a fairly popular holiday destination now but it wasn't then you couldn't go to Thomas Cook then and say I want to go to Crete well you probably could they, would, they might pay you to go rather than you have to pay and I think you can almost hear Paul using the hashtag here, sorry, not sorry. Oh, we lost. Go back one, Sam. Oh, we've lost the slide. Never mind. Um, Crete was a place where the society was messed up. When Paul tells Titus to stay in Crete, I think sorry, not sorry is appropriate. He, he really wants him to go there, but he knows it's going to be painful. This is a place that was mainly known for its pirates and its crime. And I, I heard some of you give a little snigger when, when uh, Claire read to us verse 12. Paul's being a little ironic. He doesn't criticise their society. He just lets one of their own poets make an assessment and he says, one of Crete's own poets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, true that. <laughs> I've been there, and these people are shocking. And this place stinks. Uh, it, that, that testimony is true. Do you know what's even more amazing? The prophet or the poet who said that was a man called, I've no idea how to say his name, Epimenides. He lived 600 years before Christ. He was held in very high esteem by Cretans. 
But for Paul to use this quote 600 years later shows that Crete had been a shambles for a long time. This was, this was a quote from 600 years. That's further away than Shakespeare for us, isn't it? Was it? Just about. Um, let's just tease it out. First of all, they were dishonest. Homer was an ancient Greek writer, and he described in one place, Crete, as having a hundred cities and its people being known as liars. And I'm told, apparently, that the people of Crete were so known for their dishonesty that in ancient culture, a new word was invented to describe lying. To cretinize was basically to tell lies. To cretinize, they were so dishonest that that became a word. Secondly, Paul tells us that they were aggressively selfish. That description of evil brutes or evil beasts is really describing the fact that they had no scruples in pushing people out of the way to get what they wanted. This was a society that wasn't known for its sensitivity. And let let me give you some other quotes. Another Greek writer, Philibus, said, So much, in fact, do love of shameful profit and greed prevail among them, that among all men, Cretans are the only ones in whose estimation no prophet is ever disgraceful. That Philippus is saying they'll do anything for a quick book. Cicero was a Roman statesman. He only lived 50 years before Christ, so we're coming more up to date. And he said this, Indeed, men's moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery to be honourable. It's not a good thing, that is it? And lastly, Paul says that they were lazily greedy. I think their motto was, I want it, but I don't want to work for it. I, I just want to sit back, open my mouth, and for other people to shovel stuff in. The most important thing is me and my happiness. My life is about maximum pleasure for the least possible effort. No truth, no limits, no responsibility. This is a society that has lost its way, every man for himself. And sadly, the church has too. Look with me at what Paul says in verse 11. There are some people teaching things, and Paul says, Titus, they must be silenced. Why? Because they're they're ruining whole families by teaching stuff they ought not to teach. And then in verse 11, Uh, 16 at the end these people claim to know God but by their actions they deny him they are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good what a description of a church can you imagine saying that about a church detestable disobedient unfit for doing anything good he doesn't pull any punches does he so in Crete the society is mad the church is even madder And so Paul says to Titus, 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 my friend, I've got a little job for you. How do you fancy staying in Crete and establishing some healthy churches in this place? This is a tough assignment in a hard place. What is it that makes a difference? I'll tell you what makes a difference. These are men who believe in God, aren't they? They believe in the power of the gospel we were talking about earlier to change people's lives. Why else would anyone go to this place? 
This is what God himself is all about. Reaching out into the most desperate need and bringing his love and forgiveness and power to change. Listen, even Jesus himself didn't stay safely in heaven, did he? With his feet up, relaxing. No, he rolled his sleeves up. Maybe his father in heaven when he said, I want you, I, I've got a job for you to do. Sorry, not sorry. The same. Jesus is sent by his father into the world. He rolls his sleeves up and comes into a broken world in order to save people. The reason they go is because they believe in the power of the gospel and they believe that God cares for people who live in Crete. These men are on an adventure. They are risking their lives against all the odds because they believe that Jesus is good for people, Jesus is good for society. They believe that Jesus has the power to transform places like Crete. I don't think these men are naive. They see all the problems, they see all the realities. Paul nails it in this very chapter. It isn't that they think they're cleverer or holier or better than other people. They go because God has saved them and sent them with a great message of good news. They go because the gospel has shaped their character and because the gospel has fired their confidence. We're done. But what about us here in Rotherham? I hope this little short letter will encourage you to believe in and to love Jesus. And I hope that this gospel, this good news, will draw you like a magnet to God who loves you and who wants you to be his child. And I hope this gospel will shape the character not just of our leaders, but all of us. I hope this shapes our whole culture in our church. My dream is that this gospel will inspire you to get involved and be involved, to take risks, to work hard together to bring this amazing good news to people in our community who need it. Amen. Let's pray, shall we, as our musicians come up, and, um, and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your amazing love and kindness. Father, we thank you that you don't seek to save people who are already sorted, but that you love sinners, failures, broken people like we are. How we thank you for Jesus, how we thank you for the power of the gospel. Father, may it shape our characters, may it fire our confidence. May we, may be, may we be like Paul and Titus, may we be like Jesus himself, rolling up our sleeves and spending our lives bringing this message to others who are lost like we once were. Father, would you bless us, would you burn these truths into our hearts. Would you build your church? Would you bless our leaders? Would you help our church to bear fruit in a hard place 
We pray in the powerful and good and strong name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.